Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. We have reached part six of our special Bruce Springsteen series, 20th Century Boss, where we are going through the albums of Bruce Springsteen in the first half of his career, going from the early 70s up to the end of the 90s. And, you know, investigating how this man went from being an unknown schnook from New Jersey to being this American icon, this person that, for a lot of people, symbolizes America. You know, you could put this guy in Mount Rushmore, as far as a lot of people are concerned. And how did that happen, and how did he survive that? And today we're going to be talking about a record that was a pivotal part of his enshrinement in American musical history, and that is the album Born in the USA. Released on June 4th, 1984, Born in the USA is one of the most popular rock albums ever made. It has sold 30 million copies. It has seven hit singles. More than half the album was a hit on the radio. Songs like Dancing in the Dark, I'm on Fire, Glory Days, My Hometown, Cover Me. And then there's the non-singles from this record, which are huge among, certainly among Bruce Springsteen fans. Songs like Downbound Train, No Surrender, Darlington County, Working on the Highway. Born in the USA, of course, was nominated for Album of the Year in 1985, and it lost, along with Purple Rain by Prince, to Lionel Richie's Can't Slow Down. So yes, the Grammys have always been terrible. Now, I heard Born in the USA for the first time when I was six years old, and I loved it. Bruce was basically the rock version of Michael Jackson in the early 80s, and like Thriller, these songs were just in the atmosphere. Unlike albums like Nebraska or even Darkness on the Edge of Town, the music on Born in the USA was broad enough for anyone to like. I could get it at the age of six, and my parents could get into this record. Born in the USA, it was just a record for everybody. Springsteen was so popular at the time that he was inevitably commodified and turned into a caricature. As much as Born in the USA made him a beloved figure, it also instilled overwhelming Bruce hatred in his detractors. Every time Bruce fans and the media deified him as an American icon, his critics complained that he was corny, nostalgic, even conservative. No matter the anger at the heart of this record, or the skepticism for mainstream values and the viability of the American dream, which Bruce carries over into Born in the USA from basically every record that he's made, especially since Darkness, the sheer accessibility and palatability of Born in the USA also made Bruce a target. Even Bruce himself grew to feel uncomfortable with Born in the USA and what it represented. The rest of his work in the 20th century can be viewed as an attempt to reckon with this album's success. Albums like Tunnel of Love, Lucky Town, and The Ghost of Tom Joad back away from the scale of this record, while 1992's Human Touch was an attempt to emulate it with decidedly very mixed results. You could easily argue that Bruce didn't make a successful album in the style of Born in the USA, a a big tent rock record with political commentary, until The Rising almost 20 years later. 
Now, like I said, I love Born in the USA. I grew up with this record. It was the first Springsteen record I ever loved. It was really one of the first rock records I ever heard as a little kid. But I was curious to talk to someone who, who loves Bruce and loves Born in the USA, but still retains some skepticism about what this album signifies and how it impacted his career. Fortunately, I was able to get hold of Patterson Hood, co-founder of one of the great American rock bands of the last 20 years, Drive-By Truckers. Now, there's a band we could do a series on. This band has had an incredible career. You have early classics like Southern Rock Opera. You have that era with Jason Isbell where there's records like The Dirty South and Decoration Day. You have that post-Isbell period with Brighter Than Creation's Dark, which might be my favorite Drive-By Truckers record. And then you have the last Drive-By Truckers record, American Band, which came out in 2016, which I think belongs with the very best albums that this band has produced. Patterson was in his teens when Born in the USA came out. He was a huge Springsteen fan, and he loved the record, but as someone who is a professed fanatic for the river, he uh, had some, I guess, ill feelings about the commercialism of this record that he still has today. And we had a great conversation about sort of the... uh, mixed feelings that this record produced among a lot of hardcore Bruce fans. You know, the idea that it was great that Bruce was reaching a huge audience, but at the same time, maybe he was losing some of that outsider appeal that made records like Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River uh, so great. So Patterson and I, we got into it, had a great conversation, and here we are talking about Born in the USA. So I asked you uh, to talk about Born in the USA because I felt like there were things in that record that I that I hear in your music. I thought that you might be a good person to talk about this album. And I know you're you're a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but I, I guess I don't know exactly where you put Born in the USA in the pantheon of of, of Bruce records, like where it rests on your list of favorite albums of uh, by Springsteen. Like where does it fall exactly for you? It, it falls in a bit of a weird place because because uh, you know I, I'm. Of course, I'm the age I am, you know, I was in like the prime age when it came out. And I was already a huge, huge fan. I, I, I bought I bought Born to Run when it first came out when I was 11, because I was already buying a lot of records and really into music and kind of had precocious taste for a kid my age because I grew up around so much music. So, uh, and, and I had a cool older cousin. So I, I, I bought you know, Born to Run when it first came out. Yeah. And Darkness as a Town came out the summer that I was about to start high school. And that's the record that, like, you know, changed my life. I mean, that was the one that, that like, to me, spoke to me when I heard it. Like, you know, I don't know why, as a kid in the South, why those songs about growing up in, you know, escaping jerseys hit me so hard, but they did. There was a, you know, I... My, my hometown was kind of industrial, but was had seen better days and things like that. And I just related. I just related to th- those songs so much, and was pretty obsessed with, or beyond obsessed with it. Yeah. And uh, then the river came out when I was sixteen, and that was like my driving record. And that's actually my favorite of all of them. And uh, and, and I love Nebraska. You know, I was in college when Nebraska came out. I was my first year in college, and I loved it. So I was—I couldn't have been a bigger fan. And uh, uh, so, born USA. You know, it, it's weird because I—I—I I, I, 
and some things about it I really, really love. I, I don't, I'm not crazy about the, the sound of it, the production of it. Right. And some of the songs are, you know, I, I, I don't know. Some, it, it, it's not my favorite by any means. Right. But, uh, but I also think, you know, it's hard to call a record that sold 20 million copies underrated, but there's, there's an <laughs> underrated element about it because it is a, it's probably a better record than, some of the detract the, some of the detractors give it credit for being because it it you know because they just write it off because they dancing in the dark you know dancing in the dark is a great song right but it but it's but it doesn't sound like a great song does that make sense <laughs> yeah I mean so like I mean on, on the surface you know it's got the it's got the you know, they they definitely tried to make it sound like a an '80s radio hit, and I guess succeeded. You know, and uh, and because it was an '80s radio hit, but you know, it doesn't it, it it you know, and so to me, it's a better song than it sounds like. Right. See, this is interesting. You're hitting on some things that I wanted to bring up in this conversation because. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about your your procession as a as a Springsteen fan and how you grew up sort of in the prime of his career. And I guess Born in the USA would have come out, I guess, when you were about 20 years old or so, 1920, something yeah. like that. So, like, yeah. at the and and just knowing, like, what I know about you, I'm guessing that you were probably starting to get into, like, the underground American music of that time, like maybe the punk music of that time. Um, I don't know if you were listening to that stuff yet. Um, or like the, no, I, I, totally, totally. I was, you know, uh, I mean, London Calling is when I became a class fan. So. Right. So I, I became a class fan about the same time that, you know, Springsteen was putting out the river yeah. and, and I loved Elvis Costello and I loved, you know, I, I, I guess around 84, let's see, REM was already a huge, I was already a huge REM fan. I saw them for the first time in 84, you know, the same, the same fall that I saw Bruce Springsteen on the Born in the USA tour twice. So, and like, were you a replacements fan already at this time? I was a little later on that. I, I got into the replacements the following year in '85, and okay. um, and uh, you know, and Tim was the album that like literally inspired me to like drop out of school and <laughs> and and put together mine and Cooley's first band, Adam's House Cad. Was, yeah. I mean, completely. Tim gets the credit, blame, whatever for that. <laughs> so, like, you know, at the time, that did you? Feel like Born in the USA was maybe like a sellout record in a way for Springsteen. I didn't go there. I, I, I mean, there were certainly, you know, some of my friends who have who were, who were you know, I, I, I definitely had friends who didn't like Springsteen because they were more into punk rock and thought he wasn't cool. Right. And I wasn't one of those. I thought he was cool anyway, you know, and I, and I, and I'm like, yeah, you know, a few years ago he was actually championing, you know, the, he came back from England talking about the clash, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, cause I was a huge fan. So, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, and I never begrudged him being huge, you know, I, 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 I didn't really, I thought that, you know, I thought that those underground bands, Deserved to be huge too. Uh, I, I, you know, I truly thought the replacements were gonna like break out and, and become big. You know, I thought REM. First time I saw REM in the fall of '84, I left there saying, "Man, they're gonna be the biggest band in the world." And I was right on that one. <laughs> and and uh, 
you know, uh, I saw you two when they were still playing small places and, and, uh, it was the same with them, you know, it's like, God, they're going to be, they're going to be phenomenally huge, you know? And, uh, cause to me, they had that same element that Springsteen had as far as being able to connect with an audience on a level that it didn't matter what size the room was. And uh, every person in there felt like he was talking directly to you. And Springsteen, you know, is a master at that. Right. So, uh, I mean, but there, there was definitely something that happened to him at this time where he went from being a huge star, which he became, I guess, around the time of the river, you know, and Hungry Heart being a big hit, to this sort of megastar on the scale of like a Michael Jackson or Prince. Right. And there right. was something that happened to him where he started to lose control a little bit of how he was perceived. Like, like I know like one of the things that, like Miami Steve, I think he did an interview once where he talked about how, it, from his perspective, they were already big enough. You know, they were already selling out arenas. They were selling millions of records. And from his perspective, there was no reason to make a record like Born in the USA that kind of put them on that, like, mega, mega platinum level. And, of course, Miami Steve ended up leaving the E Street Band around that time. Um, right. Due to other reasons, but, you know, that, but there was some philosophical differences there with Bruce and I guess his manager, John Landau. Um, and of course, we know that, like, you know, this, because of the song Born in the USA being, you know, misappropriated by the politicians of that time, namely Ronald Reagan, you know, Bruce was right. kind of transformed into this sort of all American guy and it sort of reduced down to, like, almost like a patriotic prop. And I'm wondering if that right. at all affected your love of him. If it if it muddied the waters for you a little bit, just maybe during that time, it didn't for me because I was such a fan that I I saw it happening and and you know it's like I I mean I I saw that he was being misappropriated and I I, I got what he was trying to do and uh, you know I I I didn't totally agree with it but I got it. And so, therefore, I gave him the benefit of the doubt on it. I mean, you know, I, I, I still get it, and I still don't, you know. And I think there's a side of him that doesn't totally. I mean, I think he still has mixed, mixed feelings. He's kind of, you know, from reading his book, it seems like he's in the last few years sort of come to terms with all of it pretty well. But, you know, for a long time, I think he went through a lot of periods of, you know, did I do the right thing by playing that card? And I think in the end, he just came to terms with, you know, I was always a very ambitious. I was always very ambitious about my art and trying to reach as many people as I can with it. And that's the choice I made, and I'm okay with it. And right. that, that, that's my reading of, from reading his book and from, you know, from uh, reading Peter Carlin's book also. Uh, that's kind of my reading on it, and I, I get that, you know. I, I'm, I, I totally get that. But at the same time, I also get my, you know, Miami Steve's thing too, because – you know, I think the music did suffer, and I think in a lot of ways his career suffered. You know, he he had that huge record, and you can't maintain that, and you lose something. You sort of lose something in the process, but he never would have known if he hadn't done it. And coming from the background he came from, and, you know, I, I, I totally get it. 
Yeah. And at the same time, I also respect the fact that, you know, three albums or four albums later, he did The Ghost of Tom Jones, you know, (laughs) which was, you know, definitely sort of, you know, was had a lot more in common with Nebraska than it did Born in the USA. Right, absolutely. You know, I want to go through the record with you, but before we do that, just sort of looking at the record overall, you know, to me, listening to Born in the USA, you know, in, even just now kind of revisiting it before I was going to talk to you, I feel like this album is a culmination in a way of a certain kind of songwriting that Bruce was doing at this time that I guess you could say goes back to Hungry Heart, but maybe it goes back further. But this style of songwriting where you have a lyric that is really dark and despairing matched with music that in a way almost contradicts what the lyrics are about. Um, and again, Hungry Heart being this song that lyrically, you look at it and it's about this guy who is leaving his family behind. He and abandons his family. Abandons yeah. his family. It's a very dark song, but musically it's, it's an incredibly poppy, sing-along, beautiful song. And I love it. I love it. I love Hungry Heart. I, mean, I love The River. The River is my very favorite Bruce Springsteen record. Yeah. And, and you know, I, the tour last year, or year before last, when he just went out and he played The River in its entirety, I mean, that was like a dream come true to get to see that. Cause I first saw him on The River tour, and it was, it's to this day my all-time favorite show. And of the 20-something Bruce Springsteen shows I've been to, my second favorite was the last one I saw when he on the river tour two years ago, because it was just it was phenomenal getting to see see him. And that album showcased the side of him that's the side of him that made me the kind of fan I am. I mean, it was the songs, you know, I love Hungry Heart and I love, you know, I love Born in the USA. I love whatever, but but the side of him that did Point Blank and Drive All Night. I mean, and the stories he told, setting up Independence Day or the River and things like that. I mean, right. that's that's what I really connected with, and that's that's what made me not only made me the kind of Bruce Springsteen fan I became, but it also informed me as as you know the as what I try to do. I mean, it, it was a huge huge influence on what i do to this day right and i think that the kind of songwriting that exists on that record he was extending throughout the 80s and and i and i see what you mean with that because like to me like when i thought about born in the usa and, and what you do what made me kind of correlate those two is the idea of writing about sort of middle american culture or southern culture but i kind of think of them as being pretty similar you know, right. average guy culture and writing about the politics of that in an indirect way, where the politics is sort of in the background of the songs, where you get the. And I guess on your last, on, on American Band, it was more explicitly political, but I feel like in a lot of your songs, there's politics there, but you're not always talking about it directly. And you kind of glean it from osmosis by learning about these characters in the song and seeing their circumstances. And I, I feel like that's true in sure. your songs and that's true in. Bruce's songs from this period. Um, just like, but like, you know, going back to Hungry Heart, and I guess drawing a line to songs like Born in the USA and Glory Days and, and, and even Dancing in the Dark, where you have music that is very uplifting, anthemic. In the case of Dancing in the Dark, it's a very poppy song. And yet lyrically, it, it goes in a totally different direction. And I, think that, and I think that's a great style of songwriting. But just to play devil's advocate, 
do you think there's ever an element of having it both ways? Like with Bruce at this time, that he could write a song like Born in the USA, which is a protest song, and he could get the credibility of writing a protest song, but then it's also a song that is very easy to be taken at face value as just this sort of anthemic, you know, raise up and, you know, sing along and salute the flag type song. I mean, does he bear any responsibility for songs like that being misinterpreted? You think? I'd, you know, that, that hits home with me too. Cause, <laughs> cause of, uh, uh, cause of an experience, cause of the experience I had with the Southern thing, which, you know, obviously wasn't nearly the caliber of hit, you know, that it wasn't even a single that, that Born in the USA was. But as far as in the realm of what I do, when that record was new and we were out touring and playing kind of bigger places for the first time, I saw the way that song got misinterpreted in front of me. Right. And, and I was kind of horrified and uh, to the point to where I basically quit playing the song and I, I still seldom play it. I, I'll play it every now and then, but I, it doesn't get, it doesn't get heavy rotation, even though I'm, I'm, it's definitely a crowd pleaser. We could <laughs> we could play, we could probably play it every night and and probably arguably be more successful even you know. But uh, but it bothered me because I felt like I didn't like the direction in which that song was being misunderstood and misinterpreted. And and it's it's pretty comparable to you know on a much greater bigger scale having Reagan basically misquoting or, or, you know, born in the USA or taking it out of context and, 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 you know, using it for his means, which couldn't be further from the truth of what was intended by Bruce's song. Right. And, and just to be clear, like, I don't think he should be blamed, I, but I do think it's an yeah. interesting thing to contemplate, especially if you compare born in the USA to Nebraska, which, you know, like born in the USA, the song it originated from the Nebraska era. And when you listen to Nebraska, right. Just the way that album is it's packaged, like you look at the cover and the way that those songs were presented ultimately in their demo form, there's no mistaking that these are desolate, dark songs. Like no one's going to right. misinterpret those. And I love that version. I love that version of Born in the USA. Uh, the, the, the Nebraska version that I guess is on the tracks compilation, right. you know, is is. is is fantastic and i've seen him perform a kind of similar type version live you know when uh, i guess on the tom joe tour when he was doing it by himself and it was it was really powerful and and it's a very different experience experiencing the song at the same time you know i i, I totally particularly that song i mean i i, I love the hit version i loved right. i you know, big eighties drums and all. I mean, that was like he that that to me it worked a lot a lot more than uh was dancing in the dark. It didn't totally work for I saw what he was trying to do, but it didn't completely work for me because to me it didn't it didn't work on either level. I didn't think it made obviously I was wrong because it was a number two song in the nation and would have been number it would have been his first number one hit if it wasn't for when doves cry, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, but to me, it didn't work as an eighties dance song or as the kind of song it was actually the way it was written. It, it kind of, it kind of, it's kind of the two things worked against each other. But in the case of the title, in the case of the, of the title track of Born in the USA, 
to me, it did work. I mean, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it was such a powerful, definitive '80s song, and you know, he was singing about the Vietnam War guys coming back at a time when no one else was doing it, too. Right. And and so, you know, I, I always kind of, even though it was unfortunately misunderstood, I always kind of gave it the benefit of the doubt on that one. Right. Although I, I way prefer now to actually hear the other version, I've, I could never begrudge the, the, the hit version because it was, you know, it was pretty great. <laughs> now, like when you, you were talking about The River before being your favorite record, and you mentioned a lot of the, I guess, like the more kind of moody ballads on that record. Like, is that where Born in the USA maybe falls short for you? Like there's not, a, I guess there's I'm on Fire but in my hometown at the end, but there's not a lot of like of those more sort of quiet or introspective songs on this record. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like, I mean, song, song for song. I like, I like all the songs on it pretty well. And I love my hometown. I think my hometown is great. I love I'm on fire. You know, it's, it's probably the last song ever written that will get away with, with 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 uh, rhyming desire and fire, you know, it's kind of like okay, now it can't ever be done again, you know. But I but I gotta I gotta cut it some slack on that one. I mean, to me, when I, you know, I I I love I love the song. I love the simplicity of it, and and to me, it works. And uh, you know, I I, I don't know, you know, I, and I, I can't begrudge. I mean. Glory Days works for so many people, but I, I, I don't I don't love it, but I, I'm okay with it. So some some of the it, 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 it seems like if he had traded like one or two of those songs for like one more heavy hitter, like if Murder if Murder Incorporated had been on the album instead of Cover Me, maybe I don't know. Right. I, you know, I know he wrote Cover Me for Donna Summer, and you know it's a it's a great single. It, it, the guitars rock and it's a great single, but maybe it just should have been a single. I don't know. It, 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 <laughs> right. You know, and who, and of course, when I say that, you know, you can subtract, you know, four million of the twenty million. <laughs> you know, so I, <laughs> so obviously my instincts, you know, aren't as commercial as his. Hey guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes on May 8th, and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. 
Okay, let's get back to the episode. Let's walk through side one here, because we've already talked about some of the songs here. Because we have Born in the USA, number one. We have Cover Me, Darlington County, Working on the Highway, Downbound Train, and I'm on Fire. That's side one of the record. And you may, we've talked about Born in the USA and, and Cover Me, and I'm with you with on, on Cover Me, which it's a really good single. Not really like a monumental Springsteen song. Um, what about some of the other... Put out, it would have been a great song to release as a single, like a few... like three months before the album came out as a standalone single, you know, and, and maybe put, you know, maybe put, uh, I'm going down on the other side. That'd be a, that'd be a great, be a great rock and roll single standalone. And I don't think the album would suffer. I think the album would probably be stronger without them. Right. You know? So like on, on this side, it's interesting because you have echoes of Nebraska on side one because born in the USA originated from that period Working on the Highway did. It was yeah. known as a song called Wasn't Child Bride. Wasn't County written for Nebraska, too? I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that. I think that came later, but I could be wrong. I know Downbound Train right. originated from there, and Downbound Train for me is one of the great sort of like deep-cut Springsteen songs. It seems like one that was a single, but I, I love that song. And, and, and the production is also one of the most unfortunately produced songs because I, I think that there's a better... I think a grittier production job on that would have really, really benefited the greatness of that song. You mean like something that brought up the guitars a little bit more? Yeah. Because I've always... See, yeah. what's interesting about that song is that I always feel like, uh, you know, if you listen to like The War on Drugs right now, I feel like Downbound right. Train sort of predicts that band like about 30 years in advance. You know, that's sort right. of like, because it has that electric guitar and synth combination. And I feel like it, in a way, that song maybe sounded dated for about 20 years, and then certain bands revived that, and now it actually sounds relatively contemporary, you know, in a weird way. I think way. you made a great point. I think you just made a great point. And uh, I'd love to hear Adam's take on this record, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? And uh, probably way more interesting than no. <laughs> as far as this particular album, but because <laughs> uh, I, I, I you're you're totally you're totally right on that, and I and I probably need to pull the record out and listen to it right now in the wake of having just seen them the other day because I just I just saw them I really really enjoy their last record a lot and yeah. uh, and uh, and so that that's a, that's a great point. So, like, what about Darlington Counting or uh, or Working on the Highway? Any of those songs? Uh... I have a real soft spot for both of those songs, especially Darlington County. You know, I've got one of those fanboy memories of that song of uh, uh, that summer, the summer of '84, and uh, my cousin, who my, my my cool older cousin, who turned me on to so much music that I love loved growing up who I actually turned on to Bruce Springsteen. I got to be the one who turned him on to Springsteen. And, uh, and he graduated, uh, he graduated from college that summer and I helped him move to Huntsville. And we were in this like rider truck without a radio and, uh, with one other guy and the radio didn't work. And we ended up basically singing that album, driving down the road between Muscle Shoals and Huntsville with a truckload of stuff helping him move. And uh, it's just a goofy, silly, you know, 
teenage memory, but uh, but but that song, you know, the sha la 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 la, you know, that song. It was like, I mean, you know, it was it was. Uh, whenever I hear that song to this day. You know, I, I I I can feel that moment, and uh, and it, it was you know, that's that's one of the reasons why you know I can't really couldn't really ever diss that album because of, <laughs> it was such an important record for the background music of that time in our lives. Yeah, and of course. You know, I'm on fire, which we've touched on, uh, being a big hit. A song, I love I'm on fire. I still love I'm on fire. And one of his most covered songs. I feel like that's a song that, for people who don't like Springsteen necessarily, they will still like that song. Well, it's like a Johnny Cash song. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's very, it's not at all hard to imagine Johnny Cash singing or even writing that song. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, you know, and I, I would imagine that was what was going through his head was somebody like Johnny Cash or one of, one of the Sun studio guys, you know, when, when he wrote it. I mean, it, that, that's always the way I took it. And, and it also added such a needed moment of subdued, of 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 being subdued to an album that so often was kind of over the top with its production and sound. Right. I think the Johnny Cash thing is right on. I think there's also something about that song where you could also imagine like Depeche Mode doing it, and maybe they have done it. I don't know, but there's like sure. you, know, you could see like a synth pop band doing that song, or you know, there's just something. I don't know. It's like a sexy, spooky quality to it. It's very malleable and. Uh, I mean, it's gone over the place. Now, you said earlier that you saw Bruce on the Born in the USA tour, and had you seen him before that? Yeah, I saw him on the River Tour when I was 16, and uh, actually, actually had to run away from home to do it. I was was not, uh, I wasn't allowed to go, and so I went anyway, because I was not going to miss it, and uh and I got I got really we had we had terrible seats way up in the bleacher way high in like a twenty thousand seat or probably eighteen thousand seat basketball arena at Mississippi State University in Starkville and uh, my, it was on Friday the thirteenth of February nineteen eighty one and my best friend and I drove as soon as school let out we drove down in his uh 1972 cutlass convertible and uh (laughs) and went and when we got there they had opened up seats on the floor to fuck over scalpers and we happened (laughs) to have a couple of extra seats a couple of extra tickets from some guys that had that had canceled going at the last minute and so we just sold everything we had and pooled all our money and bought two of those good seats and we ended up on the fifth row on the floor and uh i mean it's you know it will till i die be my favorite concert ever and uh there'll there's there'll never be anything that could ever top that experience of that that night and uh so uh so yeah it was it was you know i mean it changed my life it, it was that was you know, that was the moment where it's like, you know, I saw what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, for sure. I mean, I already wanted to be a musician. I was already had a band, but but that was that was that was when I saw the possibilities of what can be done in that format. And like when you got home, did you have to sneak back in, or like did you get caught when you got back? 
No, I got away with it. I, I, I got away with it. I, I told my I told my mom about it years later, and uh, I, I I came up with this elaborate scheme and pulled it off. <laughs> it was it was it was great. I, I totally I totally got away with it. I mean, I, I was good at being a sneaky shit. No, I mean, not to go too far off track here, but I'm just like, what was the scheme? Like, what did, what was your story? I had a, I had some friends with a with a, this hunting lodge. And uh, they would go out out in the boonies, and there's no phone, no way you could track us down. And I, pretty regularly, we would go have a week, spend a night or two out there. And um, so when when the spring when I heard about the Springsteen show, I, I, I scored tickets, and uh, and back then, you know, that was hard because this was back in the you know. Those days, I can't remember now what all we seemed like. We paid someone who was going and camping out to get us some tickets, and they didn't end up coming back with very good seats. But, uh, but so I got the tickets. So I thought, well, it was a, it was a weekend night. I thought, well, I'll, I'm going to ask my parents. But if I ask them and they say no, then they're going to be on my shit, <laughs> watching me like a hawk that weekend. So I asked them for a, a fake weekend. I, I asked them for a different date. And therefore, I knew that if they said, yeah, then I come back and go, you know, I was wrong about the date. It's actually the 13th and not the 21st or whatever. And they've already said, yeah, so I've, I've got it clear. But if they say no, then they're not going to be expecting anything on that weekend. Yeah. So I had it all plotted out, and uh, and it worked. It, it totally worked. I, I, uh, you know, we... I, I, I think I think my friends ended up even going camping that weekend anyway, and so okay. it kind of all worked out perfect. And I, I probably like was, you know, y'all need to go, <laughs> y'all need to go to Ridge Hills weekend, you know. So I, 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 there was a few other details, but I I pulled it all off. <laughs> That's beautiful. Now, like when you saw him on the Born in the USA tour, was that like in a huge stadium? Then, like, was it like a little less personal? I mean, you already saw it in um, arena, but it was. I saw him twice. I saw him in Birmingham, which uh, which is uh, the only night of the entire two-year Born in the USA tour that didn't sell out was the Birmingham show. <laughs> okay. And, and Bruce had Bruce. It was it was packed. I mean, it was it was mostly full, but it wasn't officially sold out. And Bruce had the flu or cold or something. And it was kind of off, you know, and it was, of course, seeing him without Steve, you know, and Nils Lofgren's great, but Steve is such a, such an on-stage part of the vibe. And it was, it was a bit of a letdown having seen him before, seeing him that way. And also I had shitty seats and I'm sitting, we were on the floor, but in the very back of the floor, security was tight and I wasn't able to move up. Mm. And I kept seeing all these assholes in front of me that I knew had not been a Bruce Springsteen fan six months ago. And I'm thinking, this, these assholes are in front of me. And I was, a, you know, I ran away from home to see this guy three years ago. And, 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 and you know, all these frat assholes are in front of me who don't even know what darkness in the edge of town sounds like, right. you know, screw them. You know, I've got Nebraska. I should be up there and they should be behind me. So I, so that was a little bit of a bummer. And then I saw him a few weeks later in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which I'm willing to bet was the smallest venue he played that entire two years. He played, uh, uh, back then the, 
the venue in Nashville was such an old building that you couldn't fly your speakers the way that he had his speakers flown. You know, that was still kind of a new thing in that era. The rigging and everything was kind of, you know, hitting new technologies at that time. And, uh, so, uh, so a lot of acts would play Murfreesboro instead of Nashville, which is like, you know, 25 minutes away. And, uh, U2, a lot of people played there instead. And so I saw him there. It, it, it might have held 10,000, probably not even 10,000, probably like eight to 9,000 people. And, uh, and that was great. I had good seats and it was a, it was a really good show. Okay. That's and, awesome. uh, that I had tickets to see him in Memphis on that tour and something happened and I wasn't able to go and I was so pissed about it. And then, uh, Miami Steve ended up doing the encore with him in Memphis. And I was really pissed when I found out about that. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So let's run through side two here quick. Cause we have no surrender. We have Bobby Jean. I'm going down glory days, dancing in the dark in my hometown. And you know, for some reason I had it in my head that drive by truckers at some point, covered No Surrender, and maybe that's just because you have a song on your last record called Surrender Under Protest. Maybe there was like right. some cross wires in my mind. Although I feel like that would be a great cover for you guys to do. I think you guys would kill that song. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're taking requests already, like for your next tour, <laughs> if, if you're taking them early here on the pod. But um, what, what songs on, on side two like jump out to you as being memorable? They don't as much. Side two, side two is weaker to me. You know, I I love my hometown. Right. And uh, but but I, you know, I mean, I love how No Surrender leaps out of the speakers when it first like the attack of it. But it's still it's not it's not a favorite. It's not even a top fifty favorite Bruce Springsteen song. You know, it, it's and uh, Bobby Jean. I like the sentiment because you know I know it was kind of about you know, his relationship with Steve or I took it to be anyway about that. But, but I don't love it. I don't, uh, going down would be a great B side to a single, but to me, I mean, considering the great songs that he leaves off of albums, cause he's famous for leaving such amazing songs off of his albums. You <laughs> right. know, there's, there's probably 20 outtakes from the river that I mean, uh, well, I mean from that era that, that are stronger to me than, than going down. Right. And Glory Days obviously was a great hit and people love that song and connect with it, but I never really liked it. I don't really like the sentiment, you know, cuz I don't never really I'm 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 so try so hard not to be a Glory Days dude even though <laughs> it's certainly a universal thing that people have. But uh but I, I you know, I don't really like I don't really like the sentiment of it. And then Dancing in the Dark is a great song, but I've never, I've never liked the way it was performed. Even when he performs it live now, I still think it's like, God, I still want to hear the rock song that I know it can be. <laughs> right. Right. But I love my hometown. I mean, I, 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 I genuinely love that song. You know, I saw, um, Top Shelf Springsteen. Yeah. I got, I, I was lucky enough <clears throat> to get, a really good seat at Springsteen on Broadway because uh, I, I wrote oh, shit. I wrote about it. I was like fourth row center, like I was I could have touched Bruce. It was unbelievable, and he played that song in a show, just him behind a piano. And I mean, it was amazing to see him in a space where he didn't have to sing out over a band. 
where he could just right. sort of sing, you know, quietly. And uh, oh, he sings so well like that too. And uh, I swear, just hearing his voice like that like choked me up like about a half dozen yeah. times during the show. But like in particular during that song, uh, it was so beautiful. I'm dying to go to that. And you gotta, you so gotta pull some strings. You gotta pull some strings. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could get in. You're, you're a big I'm rock trying, guy. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. <laughs> I haven't found the right string yet. I'm, I'm trying. I really am. I, I so want to go. I'm gonna be in New York in June, which is, I believe, the last week he's doing it. I'm gonna be in New York, and I'm, I'm desperately trying to figure out a way to get in there. Okay. Well, you know, you, I, I think we're, we're on this podcast right now. If anyone who has connections to Springsteen <laughs> is listening, get Patterson Hood in there. He deserves to see this show. There's, I do. I, you're like, you're, it's like you at that stadium show. There's a bunch of assholes who don't like Springsteen as much, probably as you, who got in. Chris Christie was at one. <laughs> Chris Christie get, goes to one. I, I need to go to one. Exactly. You deserve <laughs> to be in there more than many people, many rich people that have probably gotten into that show. Um, yeah. So okay, I'm going to defend. Um, I mean, I like side two, I think, more than you do. But I mean, there's some things I agree with. I think I'm going down is like. And I'm saying all of this is like a huge fan who, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I like it all. It's all fine. Right. I like it all. No, I understand. I, but like know, in the just, context of like his career. In the like, context of how much I love the Springsteen stuff I love, Side right. 2 of Born USA is just not, not up there for me. You know, I, I probably like Magic better. You know, I, 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 you know, which I think Magic's a super underrated Springsteen record. Oh, anyway. me too. But, I uh, that's a pretty wonderful record, but uh, yeah, I love that album. Um, I, I will say that, like Bobby Jean, to me has always been a song that I really love. And you, you mentioned the Steve, the, the, the Miami Steve connection to that. You know, I was I was reading the uh, the Peter Carlin book that you mentioned, and there's a story mm-hmm. in there where uh, I think it's just a footnote actually, where where Van Zant says that at least as of like the early 2010s, like when that book came out, that Bruce had never talked to, he's never talked to Steven about that song. Like he's never confirmed to him that it's about him, even though it seems it's like it's pretty clearly about him. But like he's, like they've never had a conversation about it, which kind of blew my mind. You'd think at some point they, he would have yeah, said, I get hey. that. Right. You know, if, I, if, I, if I wrote a song about Cooley, we probably would never have a conversation <laughs> about it. If you if you were to sing about, have, perhaps or perhaps I have, right? Mm, yeah. yeah, maybe there's like yeah, what, yeah. What, which love songs have you written that are actually about Cooley? Maybe they're, they're, I'm very intrigued now. But that, you know, to me, because you, you think about Springsteen, and I guess yeah, at least at this point in his career, I'm trying to think of like how many like direct love songs he wrote. I, I mean, I feel like he did that later. Well, you know, especially as he settled into domestic life, I think he started writing about that more. But like Bobby Jean to me is like one of, I love the idea that one of his great love songs, in my view, is about Stephen Van Zandt. It's about a dude, yeah. Right. I think it's great, you know. And uh, I mean, that's, that's you know, that's as much a love story as any, you know, and uh, on all levels. So, yeah. so I, 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 you know. Now I'm going to go back after I hang up, and I'm going to be listening to side two, and I'm going to be regretting like everything I said. I'm well, going to be like going, "God, this is like the, the hidden gem." <laughs> well, I want to. I mean, like, because you you talked about glory days too, and like I've had kind of an epiphany with that song lately, where I've enjoyed it more than I did for a long time, and I wonder, like, to what degree 
are the hits on this record harder to enjoy just because they're so overplayed? Like, if you go to any sp- like sporting event, you're going to hear Glory Days. Right. You know, and it, it, it's hard to separate it from that context of like jockey guys hanging out, you know, talking about sports. You know, it sounds it seems like the soundtrack to that, and it makes it le- it makes it harder to like that song. Um, but it, 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 it's an unfair criticism that I made because of that exact thing. I mean, that is absolutely, you're absolutely correct about that. You know, I, 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 and, and I'm as wrong for, for holding that against it as I would have been if I had held what we talked about born in the USA against that. Or for that matter, you know, holding, holding what Freebird became against it, you know, when it was, you know, at the time it was written and recorded, a really cool thing, or Stairway to Heaven, you know, right. it, it was, you know, the, that's all great stuff that became so ubiquitous that you just never want to hear it again, you know? <laughs> right. I mean... Although, although I'm not going to go so far as to defend Hotel California, because I still hate that song, <laughs> but uh, I hated it before it became a hit, but... Uh, <laughs> but but anyway, I'm sorry, I'm digressing. No, no, I think that's a good note to end on here uh, with, the, with our discussion <laughs> of Born in the USA. Patterson, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and I, I appreciate so much that, you, uh, uh, that you've made time to share your insights on, on Bruce. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, if, you, you, if you hear of any way to get me in that show in June, <laughs> you let me know. <laughs> exactly. Hey, we're putting out a call in this episode Get Patterson Hood into Springsteen on Broadway. There's lots of assholes ahead of him. With me, so I'm going to have to find two tickets, or else there'll be no going back home. I, <laughs> I, so. Get him a plus one too. Get him a plus one. He deserves yeah, a plus gotta, one. Gotta have a plus one, or else there'd be trouble. So. <laughs> All right, Patterson. Hey, thanks again, man. Hey, thank you. Hey, take care. All right, bye. All right, that was me and Patterson Hood talking about Born in the USA. By the way, this is Patterson's second time on our podcast, so he is officially a friend of the pod, and uh, I would have him on anytime he wants. He's always a great person to talk to, uh, not just about his own songs, but about rock and roll in general. Just a super cool, smart guy. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode. I, you know, Again, I just want to thank our listeners for the support they've given the podcast, as well as this series. You know, we've, we've been getting a great response. And I just appreciate that you guys are there and you're listening and that you're an engaged audience. Just makes this so much more fun to do uh, with an audience as good as you guys. Um, I want to do a shout out to Derek Madden, as always, for putting the episodes together, being our producer. I want to give a shout out to Josh Copperman for doing our theme song. Thank you again, Josh. And uh, again, thanks to you guys. Thanks for spreading the word about us on social media and leaving good reviews for us on iTunes. Um, and, and, and just helping to spread the word and grow the podcast. It really means a lot. We're going into our final week of 20th Century Boss next week. We have two more episodes. We're going to be talking about Tunnel of Love with John Darnell of the Mountain Goats. And then we're doing Bruce in the 90s, talking about the three albums he made in that decade. Of course, Human Touch, Lucky Town, and The Ghost of Tom Jode. And we're doing that with Tim Showalter of Strand of Oaks. Uh, these are two really great episodes. Uh, talking about, I think, an underrated part of Bruce's career. So... Hopefully, if you're unsure of these records, I think you should check out these episodes. I think it's going to deepen your appreciation of this period of Bruce. Guys, thanks again for listening. Uh, We will be back again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.